Hey, my besties, I am back, Ed Stott, with another episode of That's Helpful. Before we get into today's episode, I just want to say thank you so much to everyone who's left me a beautiful review recently. You can do so on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. You can even leave me a comment on YouTube, where I'm now putting our episodes. So if you like to see our smiling faces, please hop on there too. I'll put the link in the show notes. But the reviews, genuinely, they make my day and I absolutely adore reading them. Plus, it helps helps other people find our little self-improvement club so it is so valuable thank you I really appreciate it and if you haven't already I'd really appreciate it if you would now today research shows that on average we make 1500 decisions per day some of them have the capacity to change our entire lives should you take that job send that email end the relationship or take the leap into the unknown And there are so many other things going on our brain when we're making these huge life decisions. Stress, deadlines, overwhelm, analysis, paralysis. So how can we make them more effectively and get it right more often, regardless of the circumstances? Well, that's what we're going to learn today from a man whose job revolved around making big decisions under big pressure. I'm talking life and death. He's a former fighter pilot. Before we get to that though, if you're feeling slightly decision fatigued right now and it's only mid-January, I hear you, I want to tell you about my friends over at Foods. They're doing the heavy lifting when it comes to your nutrition so you don't have to and this episode is brought to you by them. Here at That's Helpful, you know I'm all about the simple shifts that immediately make life easier, healthier, and more enjoyable. Foods is one of them. They take the stress out of meal prepping and take on the mental load of making sure your meals are fresh, healthy, and nutritionally balanced. So if you're looking to make a healthy shift this new year when it comes to your eating, Foods could well be the answer you're looking for. They're always adding new meals and tweaking recipes to keep it even more delicious than ever. And best of all, there's no cooking, no dishes, no cleanup. Every week you choose from 60 meals, you let gourmet chefs whip them up for you and have them delivered to your door fresh, never frozen. Make sure to use my code HELPFUL, H-E-L-P-F-U-L, for up to $200 off your first five boxes. That's HELPFUL, H-E-L-P-F-U-L. Right, my guest today is called Hazard Lee. He's the author of The Art of Clear Thinking and a US Air Force pilot. He's taken everything he's learned from making big decisions at very high stakes to help us think more clearly and make tough decisions more easily. You're going to learn so much in this episode. I hope you love it. I've talked a lot on the podcast about, you know, making the decision to start the podcast and career goals and those kind of things. Um, and it's kind of tricky to not second guess yourself, uh, you know, and really stick by those decisions. Before we got on, Hazard and I were just talking about making a big career move, because obviously for you, Hazard, you know, moving from fighter pilot to author, it's a pretty big transition. Why did you decide to write the book? Well, first off, thanks for having me. It's uh, exciting to be here. And second, the reason why I wrote the book is because I had just gotten back from Afghanistan and I'd been selected to fly the F-35. So the F-35 is the newest supersonic stealth fighter 
built by the Air Force and the Navy and the Marines are part of it, as well as 15 other countries, including Australia. I helped to train some of the pilots out there. Yeah, right. But I had a few months before I started that F-35 training. And so it was some downtime. And when I was in Afghanistan, we had a lot of interesting things happen. We were the only fighter squadron in the country. And then ISIS started taking hold and they were growing exponentially. So there's a big fear that what happened in Syria and Iraq would happen in Afghanistan. And so our orders straight from the Secretary of Defense were to annihilate ISIS. And what went from a routine deployment kicked into overdrive. We were doing 24-hour operations out there, a lot of high-risk clearing operations by the Special Operations Forces on the ground. And so we got into uh, a lot of action out there. And so I had a few months of downtime after coming back from that deployment. And so I just started writing down some of the stories just so that I would remember it because it almost felt like a haze after getting back. It was so crazy. And the interesting thing about going to combat is it feels like two distinct worlds. One, it's life or death. You know, we had a suicide bomber sneak onto the base and detonate themselves. And then you're, you know, thanks to modern technology, you're able to FaceTime your, your wife or your family back home. And so it just feels like this almost surreal experience. And so when you get home, you know, that starts to dissipate really quickly. And so I wanted to write it all down. And from there, one thing led to another, and then eventually wrote a book on it. But I also wanted to tie in a lot of principles about decision-making and make it something useful, almost like a Malcolm Gladwell book where there's the kernel of the story, but then there's also, you know, truths and principles that you can use in your everyday life. Yeah, which is so helpful because uh, I guess we don't really learn about decision-making at school, right? We don't really learn that much about decision-making. I guess for me, like the time that I started to learn about decision-making was when I got my first job and I was left to manage things. And, you know, I was waitressing in a cafe and I kind of started to have have to make those big decisions for myself. How were you at decision-making before you got into the Air Force? I definitely struggled just like everybody else. I, growing up, went to public schools and we never learned anything about decision-making. You were left to fend for yourself. And so it really wasn't until I became a pilot where I started learning about decision-making and we have specific frameworks for making it. And I think, you know, after all of this, the lesson to learn is that you should have some framework for making decisions. My framework, and as a fighter pilot, might not be for everybody, but having some sort of framework for making a decision is important, especially when you're under stress. So that's something the Air Force has been studying Mm. for a long time, all the way back since World War II, when they found that good pilots were making simple mistakes and getting themselves killed in combat. And so what they found is that as humans, we have a a stress curve. And if you uh, graph that stress versus performance, if you're not stressed enough, you start to make you make mistakes out of complacency, you're bored. But if you get too stressed out, you're also making a lot of mistakes, especially if you don't have a framework for making those decisions. And that leads to one of the sayings that we have as fighter pilots that as soon as you put on your helmet, you lose 20 IQ points. And what that <laughs> means is what looks simple on the ground at 1G, as we call it. So one times the force of gravity gets far more difficult when you're in the air flying supersonic speeds, you're pulling these intense g-forces it's hot in the cockpit it's not uncommon to get back from a dog fighting sortie and lose five pounds in water weight so it's really exhausting and it's difficult to be able to make those decisions just on a training mission and then if you go into combat you have a lot of the fog and friction of war so it's important to be able to to have some sort of framework for making decisions and then to be able to train it over and over again until it becomes second nature 
You know, obviously anybody just thinking about it can think, yeah, of course, a fighter pilot is going to have to make real big decisions real quick. You know, most of our jobs aren't life or death, but yours actually is. Can you give me some examples of the situations that you have been in where you've had to make those incredibly critical decisions in such a short amount of time? Well, I think if you boil a fighter pilot's job down, at its core, it's to make decisions. And mm. each sortie, we're making thousands of decisions, often with incomplete information and lives on the line. So there are thousands of decisions that I've made. Every fighter pilot makes them. But some that come to mind are when I was in Afghanistan, I was coming back from a sortie. And it was in the middle of the night coming back. And then all of a sudden, I started seeing what looked like orange glowing ropes coming up from the base I was landing at. And I was confused at first. It was a long sortie. I thought maybe sweat had run into my eyes. And after about half a second, realized that the base was under attack. The base was being mortared. And at our base, Bagram Air Base, we had these series of Gatling cannons that were designed to shoot down these mortars. And so it was the tracer fire from these cannons that were trying to shoot down the mortars. And so we were coming back. We were already minimum fuel. And so one thing led to another. We ended up aborting the the landing, the runway was hit. That was the only runway we were able to land at because it was the middle of the night and the secondary runway was closed for construction. And so we only had about 15 minutes of fuel left and we were circling above Afghanistan and we had to go through a bunch of different potential courses of action, as we call it, like different options that we could do. We could either what we call sky hook it, climb really high and try to hope to go to another base. And we would have flamed out about halfway there. We could have landed on the damaged runway, which was the, uh, the backup plan, or we did this high risk refueling operation where we refueled from a, another tanker and we were able to do that with just a few minutes of fuel left. And so ultimately we did that. And, uh, fortunately we were able to stay airborne until they repaired the runway and land. And it was a, a eventful sortie, but fortunately nobody got hurt. Yeah. Wow. How did you come back to a desk job after that? You know, like I, I, when I've talked to people, you know, I've talked to people who were, you know, spies in the Cold War or people who've been in military combat or people whose lives have pushed their brain to such extreme uh, circumstances. And then coming back, I, I honestly think your brain is then like rewired to that point. And then you come back and nothing compares to that. How, how do you like, how do you find adjusting to going back to like a, a quote unquote normal life? Yeah, it's difficult, especially coming back from combat because they're, you know, life and death situations. And then you come back and everybody's worried about yeah. you know, just the simplest the things, fence. getting parking spots, you know, having their latte. <laughs> And so I think a lot of veterans actually struggle with that. But mm. for me, it's not ever been about the adrenaline, maybe early on, but eventually that adrenaline fades and it becomes about learning. And so for me, mm. the biggest thing about being a fighter pilot has been about learning and getting better at your craft. It's a long process to become a fighter pilot. Pilot training, when you first start, only about 3% of people are selected for pilot training. Wow. And I remember this was about 15 years ago. <clears throat> You show up and you've made it through all these different filters and you're in a class of about 30 people that all are like you, all really excited to fly. And I remember the first day there were a bunch of meetings and the last one was titled pep talk. And so we make it through all the meetings. The last meeting, the wing commander walks in, this old grizzled vet, scars on his face. We're all standing at attention. He's in charge of the entire base. And he says, I want you guys all 
to close your eyes. So I close my eyes. He says, all right, how many of you want to be fighter pilots? Raise your hand. So I raised my hand and he said, all right, open your eyes. Everybody had their hand raised. And he said, all right, two of you will become fighter pilots if you're lucky. The rest of you will either wash out or fly heavies, which are the tankers and transport aircraft. And he said, I want you to think about that while you're here. Good luck. And with that, he walked off the stage. And I remember thinking, you know, that's some pep talk. But for me, it's always been about just trying to get better at each stage because no fighter pilot, I've had a chance to instruct hundreds of fighter pilots. No fighter pilot is good when they first start out. They're all mm -hmm. terrible. And so it's just about trying to get 1% better each day. And so I try to apply that to writing as well now. So I, I write, I'm still reservist. So I fly a couple times a month, but the rest of the time I have a desk job, as you call it. So I'm <laughs> sitting here staring at a blinking cursor, writing a book. And I wrote every word in that book, which was difficult as a fighter pilot to be able to sit down and write. It ended up being 65,000 words, but it was the draft, like 85, 90,000 words. And so you're moving all these chapters. And the longest thing I'd ever written before was 10 pages. And so I would <laughs> study how some of the greats, like Atul Gawande is one of my favorite authors. He's a surgeon that's written five books, Checklist Manifesto, Better, uh, a, lot of, a lot of great books, Malcolm Gladwell. And I would just study how they would write each sentence, how they would write each paragraph, how they would write mm. each chapter. And so I, that was part of my training. I would sit down and, and write it and pencil it all down and spend hours doing that. And for some reason, even though it's completely different than flying supersonic upside down in F-16 or F-35, for me, that was exciting, just trying to get a little bit better. Yeah, and the process works, right? Because you've had so much success with the book. It's really reassuring, you know, that you can take this these frameworks that you've learned in the Air Force and apply them to everyday life. And it's perhaps, um, you know, super useful for other people because in our careers or in our lives, we just don't, we're not trained to make decisions or, you know, work through like it, you were talking about that process of writing the book, like most people would just, you know, start and have a crack, which is how I started the podcast but it's very different to uh, that process of being in the military and you know having that process driven um driving what you're doing which is really interesting so i'm excited about this so let's talk about the decision making and um, the framework you work from and i believe that you work from in the air force is called ace can you break that down for me yeah sure ace so it stands for assess choose and execute. So it's incredibly simple, but it's important to do that under those stressful conditions to have something that you can use. So there's a lot of academic theory that I think we all learned in school that is difficult to apply in, in difficult situations. And so ACE is something simple that we can use when we're flying, you know, a thousand miles an hour at each other with closure speeds a mile every three seconds. But we also have really long-term decisions to make if we're planning a mission that are that's months or even years in the future. So breaking it down, assess, choose, and execute. So first, being able to assess the problem in front of you. If you're not able to have a clear understanding of the problem you're looking at, you'll never be able to consistently make good decisions. And so you want to sit down, try to figure out what's happening. And one of the things we look for is to find where power laws are affecting the problem we're looking at. So Power laws are, are pretty simple. Most people are actually familiar with it. So exponential growth is a power law. So most people are familiar from compound interest, but it applies to a lot of different fields out there. So one thing it applies to is speed. For us, that's important if we have to eject out of a plane. So when we're flying fast, 
speed is exponential according to, or force on your body is exponential according to the speed you're going. So if you are ejecting going hundred miles an hour versus a thousand, even though it's 10 times the speed, it's really a hundred times the force on your body. So if you've seen the latest Top Gun Maverick ejecting at Mach 10, he's really going to just turn into jelly because of this principle. But another aspect of this is speeding in cars. So for decades, cities and states have been trying to get people to slow down because it speed is directly correlated to increase in crashes, in deaths, as well as fuel inefficiency. And so the biggest factor that they've found is people don't understand that speed doesn't linearly increase with uh, the time it takes to travel to a distance. So if you go from, uh, say, 45 to 60 miles an hour, the difference between going from 60 to 95, the same difference is going to be about half the time saved over the course of, a, of 10 minutes or so. So what they found is these paceometers, as they're called, if you put them in cars, instead of speedometers, people tend to make the right decisions just based on being able to assess the problem themselves. So exponential growth is one. Another is the law of diminishing return. Again, most people are familiar. You go into a gym and you work out. If you do the same workout over time, you're eventually going to plateau. That's the law of diminishing return right there. It's why you only need a little bit of soap when you're washing your clothes in the, in the uh, laundry. And then also why a $100,000 Corvette can usually keep up or pretty close to a $500,000 supercar. So law of diminishing return. And then the, the third one that most people need to understand are long tail power laws. This is why Netflix, there are a few shows that really are viewed more than all the rest of the catalog that Netflix Netflix has combined. Same thing with podcasts. You have Joe Rogan that probably accounts for you know more than pretty much everything else combined. So understanding these different power laws is important to not only being a fighter pilot, but pretty much to everybody else out there. So first is being able to assess the problem in front of you. Next is being able to develop potential courses of action. So this falls under the choose umbrella. One way that we do that, and it's we've been using it as an Air Force since Desert Storm, is something called effects-based operations. So we are divorcing what is the tool. So in the past in warfare, what we would use is it was force-on-force -force attrition. The enemy sent up a bunch of enemy fighters. We would send up a bunch of fighters. We would duke it out in the sky. Whoever won, won. Same thing with tanks. But starting in, in the early 90s with Desert Storm, we started to make it about effects. What is the effect that you're trying to generate? And so this is where a lot of those shock and awe campaigns come from. We're trying to cripple the enemy's uh, ability to uh, to have a uh, integrated air defense system. So being able to separate those two allows you to come up with creative solutions. Once you have multiple solutions, now it's time to choose the correct one. And so the framework we use for that is something called finding the expected value. So ex expected value, it's simple. It's something that that lions use on the plains of Africa when they're doing a hunt uh, mm -hmm. to you know, what most people do when they're trying to make decisions. But this is just a way to quantify it, to write it down. And that's finding what is the good that's going to happen times what's the probability of that happening minus the risk. What's the bad times the probability of that happening? Now, you're going to have to essentially guesstimate it, something we call fast forecasting. Because outside of coin flips and dice rolls, it's impossible to get an exact answer, but that's okay. So you want to use your 
your intuition and your experience that you bring from a career of doing this to be able to estimate that. And it's good if you have multiple people that are doing this together and you can figure out, you know, if you have a similar answer to somebody else, your, your, your probability that that's correct will increase because mm -hmm. now two people have come up with a similar solution on their own. You might find eventually, you know, if this is a corporate setting that you are wrong, that's a great way for you to update your mental model. So the next time you come up with a, a similar uh, decision, you can be better at it, or you can be the hero for the day. You can be the person that finds the solution that everybody missed. And I've seen this happen several times in my career. We have a lot of elaborate computer models that we use in the Air Force. And usually people are intimidated by these because they don't quite understand them. But I found several times that people have been able to check those computer models by essentially fast forecasting and expected value on their own, finding that actually somebody just fat fingered the data entry and <laughs> they were able to save the, uh, the decision. And then lastly, being able to execute, being able to carry out the decision. We talked about how people's IQ decreases when uh, you get stressed out. I think a lot of people experience this with public speaking or any, oh, any yeah. sort of other thing that you feel stressed out. You know, you might not feel as smart as you normally do. And so as fighter pilots, especially the last 10 years, we've been working from a human performance standpoint of how to be able to decrease stress to get yourself into that optimal zone. One place that we experience this is refueling. So talked a little bit about that earlier, but you're pulling up behind essentially an airliner filled with fuel. And you've been taught your entire career never to hit another aircraft. Now you're intentionally touching another aircraft going 350 miles an hour. And so it's pretty stressful the first couple of times you do it. And we've actually put heart rate monitors on new pilots and their heart rates will be about 170 beats a minute, like an all out sprint, even though they're sitting just like we are right now. And so finding ways to, to get more relaxed, to, to activate the parasympathetic nervous system, to slow them down, to be able to make good rational decisions is important. And then to be able to actually execute and carry out what they're trying to do. Now, if you're looking to make a healthy shift this new year when it comes to your food and nutrition, you foods could well be the answer you're looking for. They'll take on the mental load of meal prepping so you can focus on making the big decisions that really matter. They'll deliver gourmet, nutritionally balanced meals, fresh, never frozen, right to your door. All you do is hop online, choose what you like the look of from over 60 meals that are constantly being tweaked and added to so that they're more delicious than ever. Make sure to use my code HELPFUL for up to $200 off your first five boxes. That's HELPFUL, H-E-L-P-F-U-L, for up to $200 off your first five boxes. Wow, so there's a lot in this, but when we start to use it, and I guess when we start to use it, it becomes like a muscle, right? And we can, we can feel it more as an intuition and more as a process that we just put into place every time we make a decision. You touched on it there, but how important is slowing down in all of these stages? Well, it really depends on the time frame that you have to make. So as fighter pilots, we're sometimes making split second decisions where you don't really have the time to consciously work through all this, in which case you have to have that intuition over the course of your career to be able to quickly and rapidly make a decision. But mm. there are other times when we are making these long-term decisions where we're all sitting down debating the decision. So I think the biggest thing is understanding the, the field you're in and the time frame that you have to make. Because the time that you have to make, if you go back to those power laws, you're assessing the problem in front of you. 
generally when you're assessing a problem, it follows that law of diminishing returns. So you probably have seen a lot of people who get paralyzed by making decisions that oh, yeah. uh, paralysis by analysis. This is that at play where they're spending forever making a decision and maybe they're making, they're finding out a little bit more about the decision, but they're spending all day doing it. Well, most people, especially as fighter pilots, we have more to do than we're capable of doing. There's so many different tasks that we have to do. We like to be 90% uh, task saturated. Anything less, you're not max performing your jet on the battlefield. Anything more than 100% and tasks are just now haphazardly falling off. So being yeah. able to prioritize, smartly shed those tasks to maintain that 90% is important. So any time spent when you're starting to hit that diminishing return is time wasted. So you should make the decision and move on. Another way to think about it is you're just trying to increase the resolution of making the decision until you can find the higher expected value. At that point, you just want to move on. So it's very important Ooh, to good. learn to be decisive. Now, there are some decisions that are one-way doors, really big decision that you can't come back from. Mm -hmm. In that case, you want to spend a little bit more time making them. But for the vast majority of us, even as a fighter pilot, most decisions that you make, you can slowly iterate along the way. And so it's better to be decisive than to spend forever making a decision. Yeah. And that's what I was going to ask you about, because I've spent a lot of my career working in um, like very fast paced journalism. So, you know, you have like five minute deadlines or you have to you're listening to something go out on air and you have to decide whether it's going to be a legal problem, whether you need to dump someone. So we have a dump button on the radio where everything's going out in 10 second delay. And so you can hit the dump button to get rid of the 10 seconds that have just gone out. You know, if somebody says something really rude or if someone says a swear word. So like a lot of the time, like in that kind of journalism, making any decision is better than making no decision. Is that kind of a similar framework to what you would work towards? You know, like you have to make that decision, don't get paralyzed by it. And I think that when you take that approach in the rest of your life, you kind of accept, obviously, that there are those one-way doors that you can't come back from. But often you're not really going to make a wrong decision. It's just going to take you on a different path. Absolutely. I've never heard of that though. The dump button. I wish I had yeah. that in real life. That would be great. <laughs> I know. Yeah. You could just erase everything stupid you ever said. <laughs> but to your point, we, we have a saying that uh, no decision is a decision and it's one of the worst mm. ones you can make. So I think that's pretty similar to what you're saying. So learning to be decisive is a critical skill because yeah. if you can be decisive, then you can also for those very important decisions, find ways, especially processes to be able yeah. to analyze it a little bit more. It's difficult to take somebody who's constantly paralyzed by decision-making and make them decisive. Now you can do it if you throw them kind of in the hot seat, like you were saying, if you put them into one of those positions. One thing I find that really helps people make decisions is learning how to fly. Even tiny Cessnas, <laughs> if you if you take them up, as soon as you take off, you are now fully responsible for getting yourself back on the ground. And so I find yeah. that really helps people to make decisions, but putting yourself in positions where <laughs> Seems you a bit have extreme, to make though, decisions. Doesn't it? <laughs> What's that? Seems a bit extreme. Get them up in the plane. <laughs> I, I like it. Just get them up get there. Them you have to get down by yourself, find a way to do it. But I, I think it. I think uh, there's probably, you know, in between steps, but finding ways <laughs> to become more decisive, because that's a critical skill, no matter what you're doing, you're going to yeah. have times when you have to make very quick, good decisions. And if you don't have that skill, it's a muscle essentially that you're working out. 
We have a saying that you don't rise to the level of your expectation, you fall to the level of your preparation. So constantly being able to train yourself so that when those difficult decisions come up with a short time frame, that you can make them and that you know you've done that. Because that's essentially what confidence is. It's being able yes. to know that you've done something before and then being able to execute it. And as an instructor pilot, that's something that I've had to really work with students. So I've had a chance to work with some of the best students in the world. They're often in their early to mid twenties, getting a chance to fly these hundred million dollar aircraft. They're incredible pilots, but it's, it's what's between their ears. Being able to be mentally resilient, mentally tough is a difficulty because they've never had experiences where they failed. Yes. And so at the speeds we fly, it's easy to make a bad decision and now to be worried about uh, how you might be failing that flight, how you might be failing out of training. And now you're spending mental bandwidth that you could be focused on that decision. You're now focused on something that is not affected by that present moment. So finding ways to stay in that present moment is crucial to being able to make good decisions because now you made a mistake. Now you need to be, be even more focused. So, um, you know, we, we see, we see people that choke. So, you know, they, they've done it before and they're just failing, even though they know how to do it. So giving them tools to be able to succeed there. One of the best tools I think is the debrief. If you ask any fighter pilot yes. where the most learning comes from, they will all say without fail the debrief. And so I think it also helps with being able to stay in the present moment because you don't want to grade yourself while you're doing something. You always yeah. want to have a time set aside afterwards. So when you make a mistake, when you're doing something, don't judge yourself. Then just say, I'll worry about it. I'll worry about it in the debrief. And so when we fly, we'll fly for typically about an hour, hour and a half, and we'll come back and we'll spend, you don't have to do this. We'll spend two to six hours debriefing that sortie. We'll go through everything that went wrong. Sometimes listening to the same radio call 10 times just to find out how we can do it better. But what I tell people, other people, and what I use in my own daily life is just setting aside a 30 minute time, a dedicated time to debrief, finding three things that you did wrong. What were the root causes and how you can get better the next time? And then you won't be judging yourself in the moment. Yeah, I really like that. And I guess a lot of us do do that anyway. You know, we come home from work and we have a, we've had a shitty day and then, you know, you talk to your partner or you call your friend or you call your mom and you probably do that anyway. But I guess recognizing what you're doing and actually focusing that, like you say, coming up with three ways that you could do better might be a really great way of kind of drilling down into that debrief. Um, you say once we debrief and we've identified our mistakes, how should we treat those mistakes? You know, because so many of us, we see those mistakes and we just get down on ourselves and it knocks our confidence. But how would you as a fighter pilot identify those mistakes and then learn from them? So the debrief, there's a lot of best practices with it, especially if you're working in a team environment. So one of the yeah. things is that the leader has to not use their rank or status as a shield. What you want to do when there's a failed objective or something that you don't think has been up to standard, what you want to do is you want to treat it as a, a sterile environment. You're not trying to attribute it to individual people. You want to find yeah. out how to get better. That's how you win. So a lot of people, they have egos. Totally. You don't like to hear all the mistakes that you're making, but you're, you have to transition from when you're actually doing something, you're trying to win, but the way to win in a fighter pilot debrief is to raise your hand and be the person to say, I could have done better. 
and that would have saved that failed objective. And if the entire team is doing that, you have a great culture and it really starts at the top. But even if you have a boss that, you know, isn't great at that, if you, if you start doing that, it'll spread and yeah. you want to be the person that's accountable for making the mistakes. And a lot of people don't like to be in that position, but what you'll find is that your peers and your coworkers and your bosses will really respect you and they know who's, who's actually, you know, most responsible. But I think for any failed objective, everybody has a role in how to get better. So there's a lot of best practices for the debrief, but ultimately when you make a mistake, you don't want to attribute it to yourself as how you're bad and how you made a mistake and that you can't come back from it. You sh it should just be a sterile environment where it's a learning opportunity, how to get better. And what you want to do is you want to find the mistake. You want to find two things, the root cause. So that's where the train came off the tracks. So if you could go back and remove one thing, what would you remove? And the second thing is you want to find the the biggest contributing factor, the primary contributing factor, as we say. So where the initial mistake happened and where the biggest mistake happened. And sometimes those are the same thing, but those are the two things you want to look for. You then want to write what you would do next time. And so you want to write it out so that it's very clear. If you're doing it in a team environment, you now want to brief it to the team, how you're going to fix it the next time. So you're really giving them the why it happened and then how to fix it next time. And if you do that, I mean, excellence is just about getting 1% better each flight or each event. And if you can get 1% better, uh, you know, it seems like a little bit, but over time it can make a massive improvement. Yeah, absolutely. I really like that. And so you talked a bit about ego there. Um, and in terms of a team setting, how it um, can be, um, you know, a hindrance to decision making and reevaluating. But in our own lives, how can we check our ego when we're decision making? You know, particularly when it comes to something like career, you know, if we're thinking about making a big move or making a change in our career, we can think, well, I could, you know, I'm kind of high up in this company or I'm high up in this role. I could pack it in, but I'm going to have to, you know, take a few steps down. And the thing that might stop us from making that decision is ego, because we think, well, I've worked so hard, I've actually earned this position. How can we check our ego when we're making these kinds of decisions? I think it's what you're focusing on. If you're focusing on outside recognition, then that's that's a trap that goes back mm. thousands of years. You can read Meditations by Marcus Aurelius and see all the mistakes that people have made over the years. But if you're focused on status, then that's a losing game. But if you yeah. are focused internally on constantly learning, constantly getting better, constantly finding areas to 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 just play around with and see where your interests go, then I think it'll lead you to whatever your passion is. And mm. so I think for me, flying fighters was a passion. Being able to write was a passion. As you talked about, it's it's difficult to go from being at the pinnacle of something to climbing down. You know, you made it after a, a decade of climbing this mountain, and now you have to walk down, and you are now just like everybody else, you know, staring at a blinking cursor, trying to write <laughs> something that, uh, you know, you don't really doesn't have a chance of being published. And so it's it's challenging to do, but I think that's that's fun. It's finding new new ways to put things together. And actually most talking to my publisher, about 85% of non-professional authors use either a co-writer or ghostwriter or something yeah, like right. that. But I, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to go through the pain, which it was very painful to be able to 
to write. And, you know, I'd write 500 words every day. I, I wrote for over 500 days in a row, didn't take a single day off. And so constantly banging my head against the desk, trying to, <laughs> trying to write something. I'm sure, you know, you know, the oh, feeling, yeah, I'm sure there. you could have written it much faster than me. I'm a slow I writer. Much that. <laughs> and then sometimes I would write 2000 words, be so excited next day. It was all garbage. And so I'd have to delete it and, and start over again. And so that's why took over 500 days, took 11 uh, or nine drafts to be able to, uh, to write it. But, you know, looking back on it, I think, and it's probably the same for most people, your most difficult moments are the moments you're most proud of. Yeah. So I think one framework is like when you're old and retired, looking back on your life, what are you going to be most proud of? Is it going to be the, the close parking spot and the corner office, or is it going to be <laughs> tackling some, some passion that you had, even if you failed, but you at least gave it, uh, you know, your best shot. Yeah, that's fantastic. Very motivating. And so, you know, when you're, I've talked about this a lot on the podcast, but you know, um, like for me leaving a stable job and coming to make that's helpful. And I guess for you, you know, focusing, um, much more on your writing than on the flying, when you're working and particularly in something where you're doing it on your own, you haven't got a team, it's just you sat at that desk every day, how do you back that decision that you've made and stop your brain from second guessing you? Because, you know, my brain says to me a lot, oh, well, you could just go and get a normal job. And then I'm like, you know, it's a constant battle to say to that voice, no, this is what I want to do. But for you, how do you maintain that motivation and stick by that decision that you made, knowing that you made the right decision? Yeah. So for me, it comes back to, so I went to the Air Force Academy and I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a fighter pilot or going to the special forces. We, we call them uh, combat controllers here. And so we did a lot of rucking. So these big, heavy backpacks, we would go ruck up these mountains. You'd start at four, three in the morning and you would go until oh most of the people quit. And so what I found was that the key is just to, to put one foot in front of the other. So mm. I, I call it decide and then commit. So once you make that decision, that big picture decision of what you're going to do, now your focus should just be on left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, not worry about constantly mulling over the same decision, not second guessing yourself. You've already made the decision. Now you're just trying to execute and just focusing on little short term goals. So I think that's the key to being able to, uh, to be able to tackle these big decisions because often there's a lot of uncertainty. Like I was saying before, outside of coin flips and dice rolls, there is a lot of uncertainty. No amount, no computer program, nothing out there can really uh, illuminate exactly what the right decision is. So if you've made the best decision you can, now it's time to just execute it. Maybe have a couple of mid goals where you can reassess. But outside of that, like I said before, maybe schedule those debrief times when you're going to debrief. Are you making the right decision? Outside of that, stop getting you know, second guessing yourself, just left foot, right foot. Yeah, that's super helpful. I um a woman who I follow on Instagram, uh, she was talking a lot about like the decision and oh, whether or not to have kids. And I know that this is a pretty big, like it's probably the biggest decision most people make in their lives, right? You know, you can switch your career, you can change it up, you can um, quit, but having kids, that's, you're kind of committed to that one. So she oh, was yeah. talking, yeah, right. I have she two was kids, talking, so, yeah, so I, right. I know what you mean. 
Yeah, so she was um, kind of evaluating this decision. She said that the the thing that she, the realization that she came to was that regardless of the decision she made, she'd have a brilliant life either way. And that kind of took the pressure off. So I think that's kind of ties into what you're saying about, you know, making a decision and committing to it and knowing that you, whatever you, uh, wherever you end up, it's going to be the right decision for you. And I really like that. Well, and I would say in that case, so a lot of times we narrow down our decisions to two or three really good ones. Mm. And at that point, we spend forever trying to find which is the perfect decision. But hard decisions are really the easiest decisions because if you've narrowed it down to just two or three options, that means the expected value is very similar. Of course, mm. a 75% decision versus a 25% you know, it's it's very easy to make those decisions, but 52 versus 48 or 51, you know, those, those, a lot of us get caught up in that. But, you know, what I talk about in the book is you should see that as an opportunity. It's a great, it's a luxury that you have two or three or four potential courses of action that all look good because sometimes there are none that looks good. Yeah. So in that case, the uncertainty probably overwhelms, you know, whatever, whatever precision you think you have. And, and like your friend, you know, both decisions are great, even if they have completely different uh, futures in them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, as, as your uh, time in the Air Force has taught you, you know, you've been pushed to the extremes when it comes to fatigue and decision making. And for so many of us, we're probably not going to be in that a similar situation, but we probably will be in a situation when we have to make these decisions in stressful environments, you know, um, regardless of our job. What is it? What has it taught you about making decisions when the stakes are high, things are stressful? And you're absolutely dog tired. What what are your best tactics when it comes to those situations? Well, the last one's a killer. So being dog tired mm. is is bad for everybody's decision making. So we do a lot in the human performance field of of sleep is probably the best thing you can do. If you just yeah. want to forget all everything I said and just get eight hours of sleep, if you can, that that would probably make you a better decision maker than uh, any elaborate framework. So. It's so important for us that we're legally obligated to have 12 hours of rest in between flights and eight hours to sleep. And it's it's one of the most important things for us. And they've done a lot of studies in the Air Force where they'll put pilots in simulators, then they'll reduce their sleep the next night by an hour. And so the pilots will feel tired. They'll also make a lot more mistakes. But here's the thing. After a week, those pilots will now if you survey them, say that they no longer feel tired, but they're still making more mistakes. And so I think that happens for a lot of us. It's this insidious uh, decrease in performance where we get used to sleeping six hours or five hours and we think we're good. And we probably all know people that say they only need four hours of sleep <laughs> and they're they're fine with that. I don't trust those people. And maybe there's you know a couple people that are genetically predisposed for that, but I would say the vast majority of them are kind of on this path where they're used to not sleeping very much. There've been points where I've been the same way, but it, you know, the, the data is very clear that you most, almost everybody needs about eight hours of sleep. So finding ways to do that. Another is making sure you're physically fit because if you are physically fit, you can withstand stress a lot more. So we do a lot of physical fitness, not just for the G forces, but also to be able to withstand the, the different stressors. Being able to, if you have to make a difficult decision, we use something called 
be, what we use is, is different lists to be able to, to showcase how much stress we have for the day. So we'll fill it out before every flight, what time we showed up, what uh, mission we're doing the last time we did it. And we're trying to get a profile of how much stress the body's under. And increasingly, we're bringing human performance metrics of how well we slip. We'll have pilots fly with Apple watches or Aura rings or different other devices, their heart rate variability, all these other things to be able to factor in. And you know, maybe you don't want to fly that day, if it's, especially if it's training, if you've had a lot of stress. And we'll sometimes sit out students because of that. But if you can bring that lesson into your own life. And if you have a difficult decision, make sure you're well rested, that you're not frazzled from a lot of stress. That's an important aspect of being able to make good decisions. So just being able to, to be even keeled, to make sure you're in a good state of mind before you make a decision is important. Yeah, absolutely. It's something we absolutely underestimate too, when we come into this uh, decision-making. And so if we only remember one thing about clear thinking and effective decision-making, what's the one thing you want people to take away? Have a framework for making decisions. It can be any framework that you want. There's a lot of different ones for doing it, but something simple that you'll be able to use in a stressful situation and to repeat it. The way to practice it is on simple decisions. Make simple decisions, use this framework, and then when it's a difficult decision, you'll have it at your disposal. Yeah, that's brilliant. I have one more question. What do you think about making decisions? You know, when people say, oh, I'm just going to trust my gut or my intuition is telling me to do this. What do you think about making decisions using that kind of tool? I think it's good. I think it's important to do that. I think the challenge with that is being able to convey that to people around you. So it works well for individual <laughs> decision-making, but I think that's why forecasting that expected value, which is essentially using a lot of that. So what is what does my gut say the probability of something happening? Well, that probably comes back to a lot of different things, a lot of different experiences that you've had over the course of your career to be able to come up with that. So mm. trusting your gut is is absolutely useful, but it can be challenging in those group environments, which is why I would recommend taking it one step further, finding the expected value of it. And then you have ammo to be able to explain to other people while you're going in a direction because it can be difficult to tell your team, we're going this direction because I have a gut feeling that it's yeah. a good one. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for your time, Hazard. This has been absolutely brilliant. I have loved picking your brain. I found it incredibly useful and I'm sure everyone else will too. So thank you. Thanks, Ed. It's been a pleasure. Hazard Lee is the author of The Art of Clear Thinking and a US Air Force pilot. If you are decision fatigued right now, Make sure you use my code HELPFUL, H-E-L-P-F-U-L, for up to $200 off your first five boxes of you foods. This episode is brought to you by them, and it could well be the thing you're looking for if you're looking to make a healthy shift this year, new year when it comes to your food and nutrition, but you don't want to add just another thing to your mental load they take the pressure off for you. So make sure you check it out by the link in my show notes. I'm also going to put the link to Hazard's book in there so you can check that out and follow him on social media. Lots of cool flying videos. If you're into that, you're going to love it. And also I'm over on YouTube now. Uh, so if you like seeing my smiling face and the guest smiling faces too, and the various dogs wandering in and out of my makeshift show studio, you're going to love it. it. Honestly, if that's your thing, 
I really think you're going to love it. So make sure you check that out too. Again, I'll put the link in the show notes. Man, they're getting mighty full this week. (laughs) Make sure you check it out though. I am Ed Starr and as always, I am so incredibly grateful to you for joining me. If there's something that you want to hear about, an episode that you would love to see made, something that you are really struggling with right now, please send me an email. I would love to hear from you or find me on social media. I'm uh, over there at That's Helpful Pod and just send me a DM. I, I Honestly, I'm doing this for you. I love it. And when you leave me a review and say that it's helpful, you genuinely light up my life. So if there's an episode you want to see made, you just let me know I'm here for you. I'm Ed Starr. I sincerely hope that's helpful. <laughs>